Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. From London, this is The Economist. My name is Fiametta Rocco, and I'm the books and arts editor of The Economist. And with me today is John Andrews, one of the paper's most experienced foreign correspondents. We're going to be talking about his new book, The World in Conflict. It's about the changing character of war and warfare in trouble spots around the world. It's also the first book to come off the presses of a new project for the paper, Economist Books. Now, John, you've worked in the Middle East, you've worked in Europe, in Asia... In America, you were the editor of a previous book about the future called Mega Change, the World in 2050. So you've had a great deal of experience writing about war. It's always been part of our lives. Why did you choose at this moment to write about this subject? I think until recently, we'd become rather complacent, thinking that war was finished. I mean, you remember that wonderful phrase, the end of history. And then you had the New World Order once the Cold War had finished and communism had collapsed. And I think there was almost an unconscious feeling, especially in the West, that um, all was fine and dandy, we would have peace and, and tranquility. Well, sadly, that hasn't been the case. Now we have war, particularly in the Middle East. But I think there are other reasons why wars until recently, until the Middle East, essentially, have diminished in number. And that's basically because you had the terrible carnage of the First and Second World War. In the Second World War, I mean, figures vary, but between 55 million and 80 million people were killed. Uh, You had the Korean War, you had the Vietnam War. But, you know, we had multilateral institutions coming after the Second World War. You have the United Nations, you have NATO... You have the mutually assured destruction between the nuclear powers of the West and the then Soviet Union. So that, I think, contributed towards peace. Now, all that sort of scene has really been, in a sense, moved away. We have different sorts of wars now. We don't have really wars between states. I mean, Russia and Georgia had a war in 2008, but that was really the exception. It is the exception, isn't it? I mean, you and I are very much... 20th century children, both of us, we were brought up by parents whose lives had been blighted by the Second World War and grandparents whose lives had been blighted by the First World War, which was very, very, very unusual. So why is it that states almost never go to war against each other now? Well, I think the, the, the reaction to all that carnage, plus also the fact that there are now uh, multilateral institutions designed to stop wars from occurring... United Nations in particular, but also NATO and the Warsaw Pact were sort of balancing against each other, uh, which in a way meant that although you had the horror, of potential horror of nuclear war, nonetheless you had the idea of mutually assured destruction and you weren't going to get another Third World War. Uh, I think that's part of it. The second reason is that we are much more globally interconnected now. The trade links mean that 
people have an, an individual country will suffer by war because its trade links will be severed. You know, things have changed. There's a, a, a much bigger downside to getting involved as a state in a war against another state. And that's essentially why I think they're so rare. It's interesting, isn't it, though, that on one hand, the threat of a third world war, nuclear-based war, has receded. The sense that the world is still an incredibly dangerous place is as strong as it ever was. Where are today's wars? Most of them now really are in the Middle East and Africa. I mean, it's not just there, of course. You have wars in, in Asia as well. You have frozen conflicts, which could always at any moment unfreeze. For example, the, the Koreas or the Himalayas between India and Pakistan. But basically, wars now are states against insurgencies or civil wars within states. And that's particularly a feature of the Middle East and Africa. And essentially, it's the product of Islamism or jihadism, whatever you want to call it, an extreme form, an extreme interpretation of Islam. A lot of the fear that we have uh, outside the Middle East, and possibly also in the Middle East, is the fear of the forces that are driving these conflicts. What explains ISIS and al-Qaeda? In a sense, it goes back to the Afghanistan war against the Soviet Union way back in the 1980s, where you had the desire by the West in particular and also by Saudi Arabia to expel the Soviet troops from Afghanistan. Uh, you had a lot of Western money uh, joining up with Saudi money to promote Mujahideen uh, fighters in Afghanistan against Soviet troops, and they succeeded. If you look at the current groups, al-Qaeda or Islamic State, their antecedents really come, go back to the Afghanistan conflict of that era. And in a sense, it's also a product of the extremist form of Islam, or the very austere form, preached in Saudi Arabia, the Wahhabi doctrine, which really spreads through madrasas abroad, through mosques everywhere, uh, you know, fuel set up with petrodollars, essentially. These are preaching a form of Islam which is really contrary to the sort of Islam that existed during the last caliphate, which was the Ottoman caliphate, which was very moderate, very relaxed. So, in a, you know, one could argue that chickens are coming home to roost here. And the irony, of course, is that one of the targets, both of al-Qaeda and of the Islamic State, or of ISIS, is actually the ruling Saud family in Saudi Arabia. Well, of course, they do want to establish a caliphate. It may not be an Ottoman one, but they still want to establish one. What's the attraction of it? If you look at Islam as a religion, it believes in the ummah, in the, the Muslim community. And the boundaries set up in the Arab world and in the Middle East in general were set up by colonial powers. Well, they don't really exist in the Muslim tradition. Uh, the concept of individual countries is really a Western-imposed one. Obviously, there are differences between tribes, between races, and so on. But Islam, as a religion, believes in the unity of all believers. And so, you know, the caliph is the Amir al-Mu'mineen, the, the commander of the faithful. The faithful can be anywhere in the Islamic ummah. They could be in Indonesia, they could be in Algeria, they could be in America. And so the caliphate is very attractive as a concept to every Muslim. And it also goes back to the, the glorious days, the heyday 
of Islamic civilization going essentially from the 7th century up to the 13th, 14th and 15th centuries. How do you see the nature of the caliphate has changed? Um, 150 years ago, we had an Ottoman caliphate that was relatively relaxed. Relaxed is not a word that you'd use to describe Wahhabi Islam. How has it changed? I think it's changed because of the the power of money, essentially. The Ottoman Caliphate was very relaxed because it reflected the views of the ruling class in uh, the Ottoman Empire. Now you have a Caliphate which is influenced very much by Wahhabi doctrine, something from the the 19th century when you had the alliance between uh, Muhammad ibn al-Wahhab and the Saud family, which led to the creation of Saudi Arabia. Now, when Saudi Arabia became a huge financial force, that changed the sort of the nature of Islam, not just in the Arabian Peninsula, but increasingly throughout the Islamic world. How do you think the rise of ISIS and al-Qaeda has been driven or encouraged by an exponential growth in information technology and also the media? I think very much so. I mean, the use, Al-Qaeda broke new ground by using videos on YouTube, by using cassettes to disseminate speeches and so on. It was fairly effective. Now, ISIS has gone a much bigger step forward. It is really in command of social media. Its horrendously brutal videos are brilliantly put together. And I think they are disseminated very easily over the Internet. I mean, the Internet is such, obviously, a global phenomenon. It doesn't respect any sorts of geographic boundaries. And ISIS is clever enough to be able to get through to people regardless of attempts by the authorities to somehow block their websites. At the same time, you have ISIS's own magazine, Dabiq, which pretends to be of great religious authority. And so it's trying to look at it from two angles, from being terribly modern and at the same time also being religiously um, coherent. Your book, of course, has a much um, broader umbrella-like view. How do you think warfare has changed? It's changed in the sense that it is now increasingly asymmetric. I mean, wars used to be fought one state against another using whatever was available in terms of the most modern technology, missiles, tanks, cannon, etc. Now, uh, someone with a cell phone can detonate an, an improvised explosive device, an IUD, IED, in Helmand province in Afghanistan or in Istanbul or wherever and be just as effective and will be inducing terror in the kind of way that didn't exist with conventional warfare because it's aimed specifically at citizens who have no military role. And so I think terror has become a much greater factor in warfare. At the same time, asymmetric warfare has proven its capacity to almost humiliate great powers. I mean, if you think of 9-11, 2001... The day, if you, if you like, that the world changed, it unleashed what George W. Bush called the global war on terror. I mean, this was not exactly high-tech, but it was incredibly effective, and it led to the invasion of Afghanistan and then to the invasion of Iraq. Can terrorism be defeated then? I don't think so. I think it will never go away. We've always had terrorism. 
it's not a new phenomenon. I think the, quest, the real question is how do you limit it? And that obviously involves using a security techniques as much as you can. It also involves, in particular, I think, changing the narrative. I mean, if you go back to European terrorism, there were lots of terrorist groups in the latter part of the 20th century. But you don't get many young people in Europe now saying, oh, I want to be with Action Direct, or I want to be with the Brigate Rossi, or I want to be with you know, some agitprop group in England. That doesn't happen anymore because the narrative has changed. And that is what has to happen, I think, with those who are attracted to al-Qaeda and to Islamic State. John, let's talk a little bit about the future of war. I mean, we have had in the past ideological conflict. We've had states entering into battle with one another. But we've got also other forces looking at the future. We've got climate change. We've got intergenerational conflict. We've got, as you say, asymmetric warfare. And we have a load of new technology. How do you see the future of warfare evolving? Well, conflict is not going to disappear. I think it's part of human nature. Uh, as Santayana once said, only the dead have seen the end of war. I think, you know, the forces that lead to conflict, you mentioned ideology, you can say climate change, you can say the quest for resources, particularly so in Central Africa, you know, religion and race. I mean, all these things are factors that lead to war. Well, those factors will always be with us. The change now, I suppose, the threat which didn't exist in the 20th century is cyber warfare. I mean, that's obvious. And that will be very attractive to both to states and also to individuals. I mean, if you can have one very clever kid in Minsk in Belarusia being able to paralyze the financial system or the, the power system or whatever in the United States, that's a very powerful threat. But the counter-argument, the reason not to be too pessimistic, is that we do have in place multilateral institutions, the United Nations being one, the European Union being another, APEC in Asian Pacific region being another, all of them dedicated, in a sense, to creating stability in the world. That is the great challenge, to make sure that this stability will exist. John, thank you. That was John Andrews talking to me about his new book, The World in Conflict, Understanding the World's Trouble Spots. The World in Conflict is the first publication from Economist Books, a new imprint published in association with Profile Books. From London, this is The Economist. The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.